A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That point this week would be through chapter 13 of Brandon Sanderson's Shadows of Self, the fifth installment of the Mistborn trilogy, or, well, fifth installment of the Mistborn series, the second installment of the second era of the Mistborn series trilogy words buzzwords about trilogies and series and (laughs) stuff (laughs) hey there this is cross and hey there this is pj and we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. I I set us up for failure there. I know I did it. I don't I there there is you said this in the devil's cut. There's something about the energy tonight, and I part of me thinks that it's the broken hand and slapping my arm ridiculousness that we have to do for cuts between episodes. Part of me thinks that we haven't done this in three weeks. So it feels weird because of the trashed hand. It is already 10 PM and I already kept the notes brief and I'm concerned that I'm not going to bed until one. So with that (laughs) (laughs) today is our second episode discussing shadows of self by Brandon Sanderson. As PJ said at the top, this is, the fourth book, fifth book, fuck, in the Mistborn series, the second book, maybe first book, in <laughs> in, in Era 2 and or the trilogy, depending on how you look at it. Regardless, we're reading Shadows of Self. We're talking about chapters 7 through 13. But before we get too far into that, PJ, let's talk about what we're drinking. What we've already drank, probably uh, we've led a little bit with this show. Yeah, yeah, uh, I know. I'm also at about half. Yeah, mine's. I've got about a third of it left. But we get some cocktail talk. We get some cocktail yeah. cock in the in the episode, or in the in the book this week. And we both decided to make a cocktail that Wayne makes. Mine is not named though, so I decided to name it the Wax and Wayne because, as we discussed previously. Wax is a whiskey drinker and Wayne is a rum drinker. And this is a cocktail with both. So this is the way he describes it. It's rum, whiskey, lemon, and a pinch of sugar. Yeah. I took inspiration on that. I did tweak it a little bit. I sort of approached this like a Capirania. So the way I did this was I took three large swaths of lemon peel and two bar spoons of sugar, like just white white sugar in the bottom of the glass and muddled all that together, added a bunch of ice, and then added an ounce and a half each of bourbon and Jamaican rum. And then like a Caprania, kind of like mixed in the sugar as much as I could, realizing it's not all going to mix in, but as it dilutes and as it goes on, it's going to get sweeter and sweeter. And then I top that off with seltzer. So just a little bit of something to float on top. Yeah. Yeah. Give it a little bit more body and a little bit less harshness because this Jamaican rum I used is like 115 proof Smith and Cross. I really like this. I think my one addition that I 
my one change, I think I'd add mint to the muddle and maybe I'm undecided on like a citrus bitters or something added to it. But I feel like you get so much bitter from the peel when you express it that way. You know what I mean? Like, I don't feel like I would go. I I think I can understand where you're going with the mint, having not tasted it, but imagining some of the flavors here. But I feel like it would be a step too far to bitter it personally. That's yeah, probably fair. Like I would instead of bittering it, I would use more lemon peel. I would use another swath of lemon. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe like a squeeze of lemon juice could be added sure. to it but um, yeah truly i don't think it needs it doesn't need anything to be a good drink as it is like i i, I really like how it turned out so um, wax and wane yep name that wax and wane back half beer is a collaboration between blackstack brewing company and the ballpark cafe called crowd control it is a Ooh. double ipa and the picture is of the minnesota state fair nice and the giant awesome. crowds that, they're right uh, there yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so Excited to crack into that, but Crossland, what are you drinking? So there was a tremendous joke on Twitter that I have to, at the very least, reference that that came up, which was, oh, Crossland Injured is going to be talking about all of the drugs that he's taking to deal with the pain, of which I fucking adored. So I definitely have to shout that out. Thanks so much, everyone, for the the sympathy and time, especially in in dealing with this random bullshit, but also totally my fault kind of mostly my fault injury so i just want to let you know let that live where it is so i am making the other cocktail or one of the other cocktails the most explicitly mentioned i think cocktail outside of the one that you kind of created the blue sunset of which is the cocktail that wayne mixes up for milan as he's running through the bar and kind of making everyone happy in the moment so she the blue sunset actually is a cocktail that exists in the world however it is not usually a gin cocktail and she says that it is gin in it so i decided to go off of the recipe in the book as opposed to the recipe of a traditional blue sunset so i think a normal blue sunset would probably have two ounces of gin but she said to make it stronger so i made mine stronger baby so we have three ounces of gin in this half an ounce of vermouth which is my ad here and I'll explain why in a second. A three-quarter ounce of citrus and serrano syrup. I'll also explain that in a moment. A splash of green chartreuse to add a little bit of bitter. And then a dash of grapefruit bitters to reinforce that citrus profile, as well as club soda to the top. So the drink that's described is basically a gin and tonic with some blue powder, or, or Tom Collins even, with some blue powder. However, A, this, this is better, so fuck you. But also, <laughs> I didn't have any lime for Collins. So I had to improvise and try to get that citrus flavor in and get that, some of that complexity, which is why I chose instead of use a standard syrup, standard sugar, like he does using a citrus based syrup because it's also a Serrano syrup. It's got a little bit of spice and it's actually amazing. Like it, it actually added so much complexity to this. When I drank it, I was like, Ooh, that's a little bit too hot. So then I added in the green chartreuse, just a little splash, just to give it a little bit more herbaceousness. Like literally, we're talking less than an eighth of an ounce, just to like reinforce the herbiness that should be there for the drink. The one thing I would also do in a remake is I would definitely remake this with a an actually like blue or butterfly pea flower gin. I did use Bombay Sapphire in this but I would definitely use like end of days Luna bloom or Empress gin or, you know, something in that category 
uh, just to give it that color because this is unfortunately very clear and a little bit green because of the chartreuse. But mm, it's yeah. so fucking tasty. You were we we were going over the notes and everything, and you were lamenting about how the liquor store had just closed and you weren't able to go yeah. pick up more. Unfortunately, I can't drive because of my broken hand. <laughs> so, well, there's that too. Um, maybe another week or two and I'll be able to actually take my car out of the parking lot. But until then, I don't have a back half drink prepared, which I'm realizing is terrible in the moment. So we'll figure that out when we get there. Boom. Boom. Before we talk about the chapters, PJ, how'd you feel about this week's reading? I think this was my favorite reading of this era. I would throw back that it is probably one of my favorite sections of Sanderson that we've read so far. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's up there. It's definitely up there. I think there are some like resolution moments in, in the first series that probably overshadow it yeah i i guess i guess i'm talking about just straight writing you know like appreciation for a lot of different moments and characters you're right there are some resolutions that are definitely higher notes i i guess i'm just thinking of like yeah yeah i know what you mean and yeah yeah, i i'm very 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 happy with this section of reading i to the point where i listened to it three times today (laughs) while it was at work (laughs) instead of listening to the newest critical role which uh which you i i still haven't finished yet i need to damn it all right that's a that's an entirely separate podcast but (laughs) yeah instead of instead of doing that which i usually do on mondays or tuesdays i did this instead and just kept listening to it because i enjoyed it that much it's it's such a great section there are a couple of moments where i'm like you're so close to greatness and my editor brain gets in the way of being like, okay, but if you change that line, this would hit so strong. Particularly, I'm thinking about the flashback in the final moment of, of we'll talk about it in a minute. But yeah, I adore this. I feel like this is in a lot of ways Sanderson at his best. It's great. It's really great. Yeah. So we start with chapter seven, and of course, we kick it off with a conversation about Bloody Tan from Wax's perspective and how he feels like he's haunting him and kind of talking about this idea of maybe there's this chance that he's secretly a metalborn and kind of Wayne and Wax bounce back and forth as they talk to each other in this moment. This leads into a lot of the rest of the chapter as they continue to kind of question Bloody Tan and the situation that goes on around them. They decide to leave and head off to go to the constabulary the right the octant headquarters of the the pig pen yes <laughs> same same difference they they plan to head to the pig pen and are greeted by hoyd the coachman more important than that however is another conversation through the earring with harmony that happens between wax and sazed I I guess says it opens us up to a lot of new information like an informant might in a good old mystery story explaining that bloody tan is an imitator and brings the Chandra back into the focus of the story. Mm -hmm. So I want to get into the conversation between says and wax, but I think you skimmed over the Hoyd thing. Oh, did I? Oh, did you? I think one thing that's important to note is that he's referred to as the new coachman. 
So not only is he like our, our first time being introduced to this character in this era, but with all this fucky shit going down, suddenly he's a new coachman and potentially the source of like, I, I have a feeling I have a suspicion that he is connected to the source of the sudden explosion of hemallergy hmm. instead of just being this, I don't know, frolicking world traveler <laughs> that <laughs> is immortal. <laughs> yeah. I, immortal, I think, you say? I mean, he's at least 300 years old at this point in this world. I don't know how how far before in the timeline Elantris happens, but you don't think that there could be like another guy named Hoyd nope. that is like, <laughs> no, I don't <laughs> definitely kidding. You're I, I, I see your point though on the, on the side of age, but I don't know yet how, but I have a feeling that he's related to the propagation of hemallergy and some of the new powers that we're seeing come through with it that we would okay. have expected with our traditional sure. knowledge of the powers. Okay. What do you think of the conversation with, with Sazed? That shit's awesome. Mm-hmm. That shit's so cool. <laughs> and just the sort of floodgates opening of him thinking about all this shit. And like suddenly he puts in the ear and he's like, yep, this is what's up, bud. <laughs> this is what's going down. <laughs> but I just... It's simultaneously Brandon Sanderson's writing chops and Michael Kramer's narration chops that gives Sazed such a very specific life that we've been missing. And he's been present in the story here and there, but this is like, he comes alive when he's able to speak full sentences and it, it just and not just be like a mystic backdrop like he was right. in the first book. Exactly. Yeah. There's not a lot of complications to like, bringing his character to life but it's done in such a specific way that like i just feel at home <laughs> when i hear when i hear michael kramer speaking in Sazed's voice or when i'm reading brandon writing in Sazed's voice like it, it it jumps out for some reason and i i don't i couldn't tell you why so specifically says it but that i mean that's why i knew right away that says was the hero of ages like you can't, mm-hmm. I don't, I, I couldn't tell you why it jumps out of the page like that for me, but it's, I, I think it's a lot of the language that's used. I think it's the way that it's talked about. I think, it, I think there are a lot of reasons and I think I agree with you on the ones that you've cited so far. So the I, use I of think the I term, I think right. as a punctuation mm-hmm. point of half of his sentences, it's very Yoda like, you know, <laughs> like he has the same sort of distinctive speaking style. The entire like arrangement of the way that he speaks is is just very distinct. And Sazed is I mean, he is literally God for this world. Yeah. Or harmony, if you will. Well, he is harmony. He's definitely or harmony. Lord or Lord, if you prefer, as he says, or Lord, if you prefer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I love that he even references himself as like I was previously known as Sazed. And like there's just that nice little like there's I don't know. There's a lot of that like little bits of humility that just shine through despite him having what feels like omnipotence. Not necessarily that it is, but what feels like omnipotence. 
I do want to talk about, since we're talking about the godliness here, the sort of delicate balance that exists between ruin and preservation from Harmony's perspective. And this idea that, you know, ruin is the one who can implant thoughts and preservation is the force that can listen to thoughts. And and there are a lot of kind of conversations about like, how far do I push? How far do I pull? And, you know, can I even make moves? Which is a very different status than we were in in the last trilogy, which is they're both obviously designed and everything is perfectly designed to counter each other as much as possible. What do you think about this idea of the powers being contained singularly and kind of the way it's presented? So it brought for me and I think for wax a great deal of clarity to the Mm -hmm. otherwise sort of contradictory nature of what we're seeing in the sort of desire of Sazed versus the staunch unmoving stances of harmony and being able to, to understand that there is a difference between what he wants and what he will allow himself to do, or not even what he will allow himself to do, what he's allowed to do within the confines of the box that he's put himself inside of for the betterment of the, of the world. It, I, man, it, it takes away that, desire to just say hey Sazed, fix this you know it, it lets us work within the world relying on wax uh working like relying on on Sazed to a certain extent giving boons to wax but not understanding that he can't just wipe the slate clean and fix things yeah yeah to some degree there's it gives a lot of autonomy to the characters, right? And it allows for them, like, Sazed likely could do everything if he wanted to, but instead, he would prefer it if people took <laughs> the action into I their own hands. don't know if that's true at this point. Um, I think he's moving pieces, but he's not, like, playing a hand. He's not I, th- I think he has the cheating. ability to do it, but I think his his sort of... I think what he's saying here is that there are reasons for these safeguards and, and for these mm-hmm. like rules that he's put in place for himself because they'll tip the scales. Like he, he is balance on purpose yeah. and acting so much in one direction is going to tip the scale by its own nature and going to have rippling effects. So like he can only act in very small increments by design. Right. While he has the ability to do more, he won't risk doing that for unexpected consequences. Not because yeah. he just wants them to do it themselves. Fair point. Fair point. Yeah. Okay. I I can understand that. It's it's less. I think he also wants to ensure that he's trying to set up society in the long run, right? Like that's been that's been a mission as well of his, right? So like his intervention is more of a shuffling of things yeah. into place than it is a direct shove to make sure that things are directed a certain way. He he makes a comment though saying that mm-hmm. he he at like of who he is mm-hmm. agrees with wax and would want to do those things. I can't remember the term like the verbiage that he uses, but but the powers that he holds and represents mm-hmm. do not allow him to do that. Mm-hmm. Because of their nature and what they are. Right. So it, it seemed to me less of a, 
I'm actively deciding to stay out of this and more of a, I can't act here because of the powers that I possess. More of what you said than what I said, but I think that there is a balance there. I think it's probably probably 20% what I said and about 80% what you said. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Like I agree with you. I think that he could push harder on some things if he probably wanted to, but I don't think it's probably not worth the expenditure of what that would mean to him as a possessor of two forces. Maybe that could be, as we know, when the force is supposed to push against themselves, they annihilate. So that's likely what he would be facing for what is effectively a simple decision or something similar. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, cool. We move to Marisi, and also, let me let me just say, this is some of the coolest shit. This is why the Cosmere is so fucking cool. Something about putting your gods on the ground, so interesting. So, yeah, love it. So, we move to Marisi and the prisoner. She discusses with the members of the police what to do with the man who attempted to murder the governor from last week, of whom clearly, all of the people in the room clearly don't really have a grasp of the law. Like, all of the police officers are like, well, we could we could torture him. We could do this. We could." Marisi's like, you guys don't know your head from your tail in the worst kind of ways. Like, you're genuinely mm-hmm. bad for the system, which, real life parallel... <laughs> I mean, there's that. You get the idea that it's new, though, because they refer to it as theory. Right. Like, they don't even refer to it as the law that they have. Like, sometimes they refer to it as, like, the law that they have to uphold. But, like, they're operating in the way that they've learned to operate. And, like, things are changing very rapidly here. And um, that is at odds with the sort of proverbial Wild West Ironically, they're in the city, not not in the roughs, but their law system was effectively the Wild West. Yeah, so you're you're right. I think the first one is theory. The second one is approaching the idea from prosecution's angle, being like, there's nothing we'll be able to do from a legal standpoint against this person. And then the third one is like, you are literally attempting to break codified laws that you're just not aware of. And I believe that's the progression of, you know, this moment, this scene. That's all true. There's also, yeah. understandably, there's the perspective of the people that are like, hey, what do we have to uphold if the guy's face is beat in and he's dead? Right. Yeah. I mean. Well, and yeah. Right. <laughs> like, I, fair I, I understand, like, and I agree with Marisi and all of this. Like, it makes... it's just so cool to read this sort of Mm -hmm. budding justice system and and it's established enough that there are people that are experts in it but it's new enough that there are enforcers of it that don't know what the fuck's going on and it makes for complete novices very compelling storytelling Mm -hmm. it it does turn this from like I, i i think i compared this last week some of Marcy's perspectives kind of feel like law and order in moments, but like new law and order, fresh, like the the general idea. And this one, I think, especially highlights that, like you're saying, it, it just mm-hmm. it hits home in a great way in, yeah. in the way that like this is new. All of it's new. Cars are new. Lights being everywhere. Electric lights are everywhere are new versus assumptive gas lamps. You know, I mean, it's all it's all new. But I do want to round out this chapter with Wax arriving and catching up to Marisi 
and giving her the catching her up to speed as well on what he learned from speaking with God and then moving on to the prisoner and receiving that mysterious coin from the arm. What you make of the whole moment that rounds out this chapter with that? We're going to go into chapter eight. We open up this chapter with a flashback, which is a first for the series outside of the the prologue itself. It begins with a monologue about currency and the value of money being derived from expectation. To quote Ed Warren here, this coin is worth more than the others because people think it is. They expect it to be. The most important thing in the world, the most important things in the world are worth only what people will pay for them. If you can raise someone's expectation, if you can make them need something, that is the source of wealth. Owning things of value is secondary to creating things of value where none existed. After this discussion of specie currency and the general idea (laughs) therein, we're presented with two examples of people receiving loans from the bank and Wax's early gut instinct to do the right thing for people as a hero. What do you think of this flashback sequence? I mean, it it does a lot for the background of our character. It establishes, as you mentioned, Wax wanting to be a hero and that being ingrained in him from an early age and... As as described here, something that his uncle thought he would have grown out of by now. So it was probably well established at a very, very early age. But it also shows that his intentions and his actions match that desire and back up that that idea. Like he is a man of action. <laughs> to to kind of go forward from that, loved the transition of it being a like retold story in the back of this coach going from, from like straight up flashback to storytelling. I thought that was a very nice, almost cinematic kind of cutscene. Yeah. It, it very much in a TV show way feels like you've got in a TV show, you've got five acts. Usually this is act one. And then you would cut back to real day where he's explaining the end of the story and where maybe he'd say, yeah, I ran and gave the man the coin as Ed Warren had introduced it to me as this like crazy duplicate coin that's worth all this money to try to solve the problem. However, it didn't solve the long term problem with the man. I felt like it was very cleanly done because it starts out as straight up narration and transitions into like quotes, right? Like, I don't well, think it's, it's, it's perspective. It's perspective narration. And then it breaks it up with asterisks, which is a very it's I mean, I don't want to give claim where it's undue. Stephen King is notable for uh, using and abusing asterisks almost as chapter breaks and POV breaks. It's a very common way of separating perspective in moments with either flashbacks, forwards, etc. So. Mm. Um, I appreciate the way that it basically goes into him explaining the fact that he's talking about it in the in the car with Steris and giving that introduction and definition to this sequence. It's especially great, too, because we also get an understanding of the economy in a fun way and also seeing the way that Ed Warren has kind of always been the same kind of guy. Like he's he's been fairly consistent at this point of life and hasn't really changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. So, they're, so they're both going, exactly who they were 30 years ago or whatever it is i don't know how that's old a wax is fair point i i would argue that it's probably about 20 between 20 and 30 years ago about that because he's 
late he's 30s, like early 40s, if I remember correctly, in the books. So, yeah, somewhere somewhere in between um, 25, 20 30, 30 years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But thinking about the way that we, of course, come upon this coin and how Bleeder could have potentially gotten this coin into the person and the organization of the set and their involvement here, there's, there's a lot to parse out. Of, of course, we still have a party to attend, and that is the first and most important thing in all Mistborn books, of which I think is kind of a fun little way of representing a lot of that same Mistborn era one stuff inside of this has been, as opposed to balls, their parties. It's it's basically the same thing, but with a different twist on it, given the era. And there's a sweet little moment of discussing the difference between understanding and condoning social conventions as it applies to Steris. What do you think of this moment between our uh, engaged couple? I am falling in love with Steris's character. I think this is the section where she becomes the most, like, well thought out character of any of the like not perfectly main characters of these stories. Like everything about her is perfect and I love it. I don't, I don't, I don't know a better way to describe it. I could try to fumble through being more specific about it, but she is thoughtful and intelligent and consistent. I don't know. I totally agree. I I think that, especially considering what we've read so far, I think that she is along with Marisi. I I think both of the era two women are the two best women that Sanderson has written up until this point. Vin was such like a blank slate because of trauma and other things that she kind of has the, the main character protagonist problem of like anyone can map onto this, which is a great thing from some perspectives of like very relatable, very easy to get into the head of, but the benefit of Steris and Marisi is that they feel like such distinct women, despite being raised by the same man and being half sisters and everything else. I just really, I agree with you. I really appreciate it. And this is definitely where Steris comes into her own. I, I got a little bit of criticism in earlier episodes for not pointing to some tendencies of Steris early on, but it's because it doesn't really get revealed until I, I mentioned this last episode for sure, but it doesn't really start to really break out and break down until we get to this chunk of the book and mm-hmm. this book in general. So I, I love, love stairs after this section. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So the chapter ends with the couple, the engaged couple launching up into the sky, breaking in without waiting in line and making their way up to a balcony. And there's also a revelation of a new invention as they bust into the party using Renette's new rope and spike. Any thoughts on this? And do you have any other ideas on maybe some other allomantically interesting items for coin shots, lurchers and the like that you can think of? This feels like such an obvious like piece of equipment for any Mistborn mm. to hold. And yet. And, and yet <laughs> it went un, unused until now because God, imagine Vin with this. Right. Being able to push and pull on it. Holy shit. <laughs> Pewter, like the ability to swing something like that at force. Yeah. She wouldn't even need it to have a rope on it. Truly. Technically. No, right. <laughs> she could just have a, a giant mm-hmm. fucking cow trap that she could just throw at stuff and then pull herself towards. I feel like the benefit <laughs> of the rope comes in the way that other people might push on it and then and- you would throw yourself around with it. Like yeah. that's that's the benefit, but yeah, I totally agree with you. You could totally do it just like a, a fucking mace that you throw yeah. around, <laughs> rotational motion, all that. Any other ideas on fictional weapons? 
here? Uh, it depends on how futuristic we can get with it. But we have guns. I don't want to go too much further than guns, but I know. But because like rail guns are an eventuality, like that's I mean, gonna I'm, happen. I'm not. I'm not but, going that. I'm. I'm sticking yeah. with gunpowder weapons, but okay, claymores. Mm. And oh. instead of instead of being like triggered by motion detection or any 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 detection of any sort, just having somebody sitting and waiting and like triggering it from a distance. Any kind Land, of mine. Any, yeah, any kind right. of landmine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's brutal. <laughs> wow. I, um, you know, Brandon doesn't get into like full scale war that often so far in the series. But, you know, yeah, that'd be that'd be intense with, uh, with really the technology. Intense. It'd be really bad. Renette, I swear to God, if the next book includes Claymore's, I'm going to lose my fucking mind. It's war crimes. Renette, war crimes. I... Renette is my spirit animal and I will have <laughs> Yes, no. she is. I am so glad you said that because I every from the from the first moment that you said like I would be a fucking lurcher, I was like, Yeah, you would. I know Renette. I know I know when we get there, you're gonna be like, I'm so into that. That's exactly what I think. The she, moment you said lurcher, I was like, You're gonna love Renette because she's exactly as you imagine. I want to date Wayne. Oh and I want to commit war crimes. <laughs> hell yes all right so that's gonna round out chapter eight so we go to chapter nine and in zobel wayne and marisi discuss the captive as well as the piercing that the captive has on his chest before they manage to work their way into the party under a different guise of which sets up a lot of fun later of course but I want to talk about the little bits of information about the captured man. Given that the spike is likely hemallergic, what do you think is up with that? Hemallergy is running amok, <laughs> mm-hmm. seemingly, in the city at this point. And I i mean, obviously, there has to be some external, like, ah, man, there's got to be something external ushering this forward. And it's either something that's been building for a long time. And slowly, like, more and more is being added to it. And suddenly the floodgates are opened. And that's what we're dealing with right now. Or, I mean, Bleeder was a direct, like, report to the to the Lord Ruler. So maybe she has some extra knowledge on her own. And taking out one of her spikes inadvertently allowed her to sort of act upon that, like, long forgotten knowledge i there's something external causing this and i don't know what it is but there's something more than just hemallergy at play here i feel like especially given what we come into later this chapter with the like telepathic conversation yeah i don't know definitely makes sense so there's something else at play yeah Yeah. this is absolutely a prediction despite the fact that you may be didn't give something fully we'll see do do you have an assumption or do you have a thought on what it could fully be hoid you think okay i think hoid is maybe not also a god but has access to the same level of powers that ruin and preservation and now says it had and maybe that's more prevalent later or in different parts of this cosmere but 
Also, I think we got the first use of the term Cosmere in this section, didn't we? Or was that last section? That is this section, but it's much later. Okay. Sorry. I said it and... No, it's all, it's all good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think I think there's, there's some uneven power levels of what he can do compared to everybody else on this. Okay. So are, do you ascribe malicious intent? I don't think so. Okay. At this point, I don't think so, but I do place blame, I guess. Sure. I'm guessing I'm guessing blame can be put like the reason for its existence is at his hand. Okay. All right. You know, there's a lot there. I think this will make a great prediction to talk about in the long term, which will be really fun. But it's interesting, the approach of approaching the idea of Bleeder and what Wax wants to do with this party to suss her out in this moment. It's also interesting, we didn't make mention of this earlier, but there was a great clap back almost in a moment from Sazed earlier, which is like, assuming that it's a he, like, are you just describing villainy to masculinity? Is that, and not just masculinity in general, but like, that's the only people that are capable of doing such a thing. How dare you? It's a her. I, I just think it's like a nice little little beat here. But he's he is handling this moment in the scene in a very interesting way. He's feigning drunkenness through a powder in the water, making it look like he's drinking brandy, walking throughout this party, keeping the steel bubble up consistently, which also goes to show that he is a perhaps savant because just one day it can start to happen versus before it had never happened before. And he began to like be able to interact in that way. It's interesting there. I wonder if there are other drawbacks. Can, but can you say that again? Sorry. What about Savant? So I'm not necessarily saying that he is a savant, but one day he said that he could put up the steel bubble as though it was a was a thing around him, right? It just happened one day when he was burning steel. So it leads me to believe that he's a savant, right? Not necessarily that he is, but it leads me to believe that that is the that case. makes sense. Or that is some degree of savantism. It's it's somewhere on the spectrum. But he's walking around with the steel bubble up, all the small things to kind of like help him detect if something is off as he pushes around pieces of silverware off people's plates and otherwise. And there are so many cards to play if things were to go awry in this moment for him. They're thinking and exploring all kinds of methods. But in this scenario, it is Steris and her thorough and crafty nature that comes ahead a couple of different times. Humorously, in some moments, like when she is disarming like a blunt instrument to the man of who approaches them in the middle of the conversation when she has this extra information. And in other moments, to ward away the guy that's wasting time, in other moments, she is wielding it as some clever pathing through the room, we'll call it, because she knows where they shouldn't go and then is interrupted by this one and wields it like this blunt instrument that it is. It's just a nice moment altogether where Wax comes to understand this sort of genuine side of Steris. God, it's so well done. And I, she points out the difference between what she, he, he says she's good at this and she corrects him and says she's proficient in it. I think those were the terms, right? Yes, that sounds right. And she makes a big deal of that, but doesn't go into any further, like doesn't get a chance to go further into like explaining the difference between them. Other than saying that there are some people that are true masters, but he didn't say she was a master. He said she was good at it. And I would, I would argue that proficient and good at are absolutely synonyms. (laughs) I, I think so. I think that she's also just 
landing herself and only thinking about that one capability. And in the scale of things, she feels like she's not as capable as she should be or as she could be potentially mm-hmm. like she's measuring herself when yeah. and inappropriately and incorrectly, I would, I would argue because she is very skilled in it. Right. This is where she refers to it as a blunt object because yes. I, th- I think she's talking about it in comparison to how somebody could do it. In a way that Mm -hmm. like people don't even realize that they're being manipulated socially. But it's so sweet. Like it's, I don't know. It's very sweet. I mean, but not necessarily. It's just not overtly malicious. Right. But in context, it can be like, for example, how's your fiance, your relationships, the talk of the town comes across as like innocent to us. Because at the moment, we're not aware that the talk of the town is that he's been cheating on her. But with that context, it's like, hey, fuck you. (laughs) It is pretty blunt. I I think that there's a nice circle that's drawn here, right? Where it is kind of, it's almost Ouroborsian. It's it's like an Ouroboros, right? Where you can spin yourself and think about it either way for a long time. But I think the idea in general is that there are maybe more complex ways to address this, but would it have accomplished the same thing in the same amount of time? No. And Wax values the way that she was so efficient in the moment. And so while she thinks of it as blunt, he thinks of it as effective because he's all about time efficiency. Like he's not about to waste time if it's not going to get him something immediately. So he's like, wow, you dispatched that so effectively. And she's like, I could have done it better. And he's like, I don't I care value about efficiency. That <laughs> yeah, I don't care about that stuff. I give value efficiency. That was efficient as fuck, basically. <laughs> yeah, so that's fair. That's my read on it in the long mm-hmm. run. So, yeah. but from there, we're introduced to Milan. Ah, Milan. I mean, Milan. You know, <laughs> as it is. But it's a fun, like, textual thing. We we have a couple of different Discord patrons of whom were reading this along with me over the last year, and they. I had listened to the first two books and then I read the third one in the series. And this is such a funny play because I totally would have keyed into it if I read it, but I did not at all listening to it. I don't know if you had a similar experience. I didn't realize that it was a play on anything because my first experience was listening. Yeah. And I heard my first experience was listening too, but it was Milan. It's, 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 it's a little bit different. Even even when they point out that he says, he's, I listen at 2x. Yeah, that might be the difference. In all honesty, I was I was thinking about it as you were yeah. as you were explaining. I'm like, maybe it's because it's 2x and like yeah. the, the vowels start to blur a little bit. They do. Uh, I I didn't realize that it was spelled differently in my first um, yeah. my first experience with this story or with this section because I, I listened first, which I typically don't like doing. I like reading it first. Because I, I mm-hmm. think you get more out of it, but but I've been I've been listening a lot lately, and I, I listened first and didn't realize that it was spelled differently and assumed it was just told to us that this is Milan, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until later on when the actual spelling is revealed and he says she pronounced it differently this time. I'm like, oh shit! I guess maybe this was supposed to be hidden from us. Yeah, um, right. Yeah. This is one of the few things that the the few moments that the audiobook made it less clear. 
what the intention was. And and that was kind of my point is to some degree, like it, it felt impossible to for some people, for some of our listeners to who are also reading this for the first time, it felt impossible to even have an attempt to delineate here because a Milan is a small character in the original trilogy. She only takes place really in the third book and only from Tensoon's perspective. But I hope now you also realize that like I made her a big deal because I was like, yeah, I, she's I, coming. Like I, yeah, I felt I like she was kind of a that. big deal and I think that's your fault. <laughs> I definitely made sure that every moment that we could talk about Milan, I was talking about when Milan was interacting with Tensoon because in my first read through, I wasn't paying attention to Milan that much. I was like, oh, he has like a foster kid, which is neat in like raising, mm-hmm. raising an orphan child. Uh, great. Of course you would do that. But then I read these books and I was like, oh, Milan's so fucking cool. And that history is yeah. so cool. We can't miss that. And so I made sure retredging it that we were going to talk about it. As much as we did. So I think the other thing to note, and it's not made mention here in this book, Mm -hmm. but they're of the same generation. No, they're not. Milan and Tensoon are not of the same generation. No, Milan and Bleeder are both thirds. Tensoon, Bleeder, both thirds. Oh, I thought, yep. yep, Milan is like a seventh or something like that. Milan is seventh. Milan is seventh generation. I, I, I was thinking... Tensoon was second and Milan was third. You are correct, though. They don't they don't say explicitly that they're both thirds, but they do explain that Bleeder is a third. They explain uh, that Bleeder, Bleeder is a third. How do you oh. how do you pronounce her actual name? Pa'om. Pa'om. OK. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. another. In the same way that everyone else's name is broken up into like two syllables. It's kind of that mm-hmm. same idea where it's like first part of the name, second part of the name. So right. Pa'om. Milan, Tensoon, same I, idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there's I no just, capital, which I think is weird. I didn't like that. <laughs> yeah. That's the only one. I agree. Yes, it is the only one that doesn't function that way. Because even we we hear another name in this section of whom we haven't heard before, Vendar or Vendir mm-hmm. as well. So, yeah. Sorry, I, I um, for whatever reason, I thought it was, I, I, I had it crossed in my brain that. It's all good. Second third seventh all that yeah, yeah no so first generation are the the ghouls second generation are the like lawyers that we run into in the in the first trilogy the, and then third the, generation are the, the rogues rebels. the beginning of the rogues yeah and then the seventh are the only generation raised by the thirds i believe that's correct they're yes. the only ones allowed like once they raise the the seventh, they're like, no, fuck that. <laughs> no. Yeah, you fucked up. Yeah, there's there's definitely a little bit there. Yeah, exactly. For sure. I just want to double check and make sure that we got the number right here. I'm almost positive. Milan. I'm pretty sure it's seventh. Yes, seventh generation. Okay, we nailed it. Good, 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 good. Sweet. Cool. Yeah. I am so glad that this is this is a layer of the story that I really was excited to unpeel when we got here because it's one of those things that I personally inside of our show have been like building towards to make sure that we had a lot of focus and attention on it because I think a Condra are a kick ass as fuck and they're so cool inside of the story at um, large and to have one show up. My one complaint is her bones aren't spindly wood. No here because she refined it over 300 years. I know. But she was so like exaggerated and now she has to look like a human. 
Think about it this way. I, I just want I want to spin it to <laughs> no, you. I, I get it. Spin it I get it why. Think, think I about understand. like teenage adolescence and like goth phases. You know what I mean? Like if you you go through your goth phase where you're like, I gotta dress this way. This is the only way to dress. I'm going to dress with wooden bones. <laughs> <laughs> and then you grow up a little bit more and you're like, okay. My friend rebellious. has four arms. My friend has four arms. The other one kind of looks like a pile of sludge. It's really weird. That guy looks like rocks. We're all friends. It's super cool. We get high on the weekends, but let me launch. <laughs> we get high on the weekdays. We get high every day. So Milan's like breaking point is or like the, the point that I think about, right, is like this sort of. For a Chandra, she feels like she's in her mid-twenties. You you know what I mean? Like, she feels young-ish, young-adjacent in the way that she reacts to a lot of things. And this comes a lot later, so it's not fair to, like, be placing this assessment or having this conversation even right now. But I can see her finally blending in and being like, okay, these are the things that I should be doing because it's smart to do. Before, I was being a rebellious asshole. Now, I kind of get the idea that like true bodies, like a real bone structure that's actually going to hold up to some damage is worth a decent amount. That's cool. Just is a very different experience than Tensoon, though. Where Tensoon is a and Bleeder, as we understand, are excellent spies. But she never had to be a spy. She was just only ever herself. And yeah. so that brings up a good point where the oh, what's the term that's used several times? Not the history so far out of order. Not not the historica, the historic refer like, are we still out of we're we're all over the place? Sorry, we are. It's okay, but it's relevant. Where wax refers to like the historica saying that the chandra traditionally sometimes represented or presented themselves as animals, and like Mm -hmm. that was one time, and it was off the wall bonkers that and and humiliating that he did that. But it was effective yeah, there's, and it was important. There's a, there's a specific term that's used to describe that moment. These specific moments brought up later as Milan talks about it when they're at the bar talking with each other is the remarked duplicity, which is the moment in which Tensoon broke so many fucking rules. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was when Wax was thinking about how crazy it is that like... He has no idea who this could be. He's talk- He's thinking about it in his head. It's not yeah. when he's talking to Milan about it. No, you, you're right. You are correct. What I'm saying is, is that this is later given a name as the okay. remarked duplicity. Gotcha. So definitely agree with you entirely and like the idea of animals and everything else. But Milan gives it a title, calling it the remar- remarked duplicity, which isn't only referring to this idea of Tensoon taking the form of an animal, which is considered lower, but also the double contract that he was binded in, and then also breaking the big contract in the way that he is interacting with humans. And it's not that he killed the humans specifically, but then also he killed the Chandra, which he shouldn't do. And so that's the whole idea of this remarked duplicity where it's he broke the contract for all the right reasons. And so mm-hmm. it's okay. <laughs> what he did that's how they clarify it all but yes yeah as far as wax is going he's thinking his head about animals and the the historica and as it's cataloged previously but milan makes the history feel real when she gives it like a term that exists inside of the society right 
if that makes sense. Does it it make does. sense? We're bouncing all over the place here, but that we are. It's it's so much fun. The Chandra, I think, awesome. it might be my favorite part of the story. But on the whole, I just God, it's so cool. There, truly, I don't know if there's a they're the coolest race of shapeshifters. I think in fiction, yeah, I feel pretty good about saying that. I mean, yeah. they're they're better than grounded. And I was just gonna say a grounded and more refined version of changelings. Yeah. I think they're like a necromantic version of changelings in their own right. Kind of, you know, like semi not fully necromantic necromantic yeah. implies like reviving things, but you, you understand what I was going for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They're so cool. So I, I definitely love the conjurer and I love this idea. And especially given now that we know that the conjurer have survived, not only that, but we know that Ten soon has survived. We'll talk about that in a bit. So, I love Wayne's impression of Hannah Lanze throughout the party and particularly his note about accents are our clothings for our thoughts as they make their way into the party and sneak past some guards using this kind of accented method as he speaks with Marisi. It's kind of like a fun, wonderful, like little note here to emphasize our boy's capability as far as it goes with disguising and pulling off thievery like behavior. Yeah. Moments. Makes himself a nice little rogue. I love that description of accents being costumes. Brilliant. Um, yeah. Really, really well done. But there's so much levity to this entire section. And there's a previous section before that we haven't talked about, but of just his love of the little sausages and the little sandwiches and the chocolates and and his his strategy of making sure he can get all of them as they're coming out of the kitchens and just awesome love wayne wayne is he is the levity the heart of a lot of this story in in just such a wonderful way and it's in moments like these that just like really highlight that idea through and through for me inside the story i totally agree with you i love I fucking love Wayne. Wayne is Wayne is the perfect wingman character. And so brutally obvious by the time we get to this point that it's just like, man, Wayne rules. Wayne rules. And we're all better for reading about him. Yeah. They're, truly, in fiction, there are a lot of like lesser second men in stories and like second characters in stories that like play kind of the the fiddle or the joke part but i don't know if there's another one that plays it to the degree that wayne does wayne feels so unique in a lot of ways because he is you know comparatively let's let's call him a uh dropout maybe like a high school dropout education because of situations and circumstances a reformed Murder. criminal yeah because of what he did as a kid and then a lawman in post of all of that of whom has absorbed all of this trauma and is trying to treat it himself. It makes him such a unique case of a character that I can't think of. I can think of precisely one parallel, and I will not talk about the name because it will be a person that we read about eventually. But two characters in all of the fiction that I've read and experienced in my entire life. I mean, he transcends... Fuck. That as well, though, going from lawman to vigilante almost with disdain towards the actual like law establishment. 
Right. I don't know if that changes your your thoughts or feeds into it. No, I I actually, I think it lines up even more. There, there are other details that I can't talk about that line up more, but I, my, my one in one comparison go very cleanly up the line, but that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. That's enough. Yeah. So, (sighs) man, fucking Wayne, fucking Wayne, man. Our chapter ends with a confrontation between the governor and wax. And he seems Pretty much exactly as you'd expect. A bit of an ego test like any politician and focus on downplaying the murder attempt. But the chapter really boils over when Bleeder speaks to Wax through the hemallergic spike. And she's in Wax's head and speaking to him directly, pouring poison into his ear. It's a wonderful moment to end this chapter on. And in a larger book, would have been a great place to end a week on. But we have more to talk about. Or... In a situation where we could spend more time on individual books, maybe this would be we'd be spending so much time on so little prose, like it'd be crazy. That's true, but that's true. I think just to back up, not not address the the very big thing that I have a lot of thoughts on. I think there's a really interesting note here about the governor and Steris specifically, because it's mentioned that Steris feels that the governor is very on the level and very uh, respectable and is a worthy adversary. They're not on the same sides of the political spectrum, but she respects him, has, has, a, has a good head on his shoulders. And you would think that Steris and Marisi would have similar sort of outlooks on this sort of character, but Marisi sees this evil side in the, this this basically for sale political figurehead and Steris sees respectable opposing aristocrat. Yeah. Yeah. Political figure. I like truly, I would have expected them to pick out the, the same flaws considering they were raised together, but I don't know. It's, it's fun to see that there is a very stark difference in their perception of this character. It, it's such a minor detail, but that's a great one to latch into is that like they, despite being raised by the same man and everything else, they do have fundamentally different thoughts on people's place in society to some degree. That's they, based on their own. And they're both very confident in their assertions, perceptions. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, it is. That's I honestly, I think that's a great point is that like they, despite all of the things that might have prevented them from like coming to these conclusions, they land on different things with a similar upbringing, which is so cool. I think for comparison's sake, I mean, I, I think we could all run through this, but my brother and sister and I would, I think, land closer to a middle zone on someone if we think about like a target zone we we land mostly in the middle with some different spokes of thought in the way that we analyze someone speaking but this is like polar opposite in some ways yeah yeah exactly but the more important thing and the more present thing here is the fact that bleeder is talking to wax through his head and he's mm-hmm. able to very clearly and easily dismiss that as just something that can happen through hemallergy because that's what Says talked about. 
Like that was a power of hemolurgy or of ruin. That was a power of ruin. So he was like, okay, hemolurgy, that makes sense. And it was very natural and he just rolled with it. But yep. that's fucked, dude. <laughs> There's something really intensely different about this power here. Yeah, the idea of it being a power of ruin is one thing because it's a power that ruin wielded, right? Like a god figure wielded. And this idea that someone else is able to just tap into that, completely different. Completely different. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Which is why I assume it's something external. Ah, quite Mm-hmm. Hmm. like maybe that beggar man mm-hmm. turned coachman oh yeah no i totally get it could be could hey, be a thing at least we've learned else. that over 300 years you can pull yourself up from your bootstraps and become a coachman <laughs> okay <laughs> spoilers for elantris folks so in elantris Hoyd deals weapons. <laughs> in first Mistborn era, Hoyd is a hapless individual of whom trades information for coin because he appears to be broke. In era two, he's a coach driver. So he has a job. <laughs> <laughs> he had a job. He lost his job and he got a new job. Do you, do you not like that trajectory over a hundred years feels very reasonable. 300 years. In the scale of, sorry, you're right. In the scale of however many years in reality, if we think about Elantris, it feels very reasonable if your life is that long. Yeah. In the scale of your life. Like it's a scalar career opportunity. Next series, Hoyd will be middle management. He'll be managing a taxi cab service. Hey, here you go. Just spend 300 years and really dedicate your life and maybe one day you'll potentially become middle management. (laughs) With that, we cut into chapter 10. Chapter 10 is real quick as is chapter 11. First up, we've got Wayne being shattered at by an inventor's daughter claiming that Hanel Isaiah, the man that he's impersonating, killed her father by stealing his inventions. It's a small moment and a small piece here to think about instead of the whole story. But what do you think about it, especially as it parallels and pertains to Wayne's own story of killing a father? There are some really, really high highs here as far as like comedy goes, but it gets cut down at its knees really fucking quickly. Like considering his sort of trauma of like killing someone's daddy as he as he mentions it takes the winds out wind out of his sails almost immediately and up until this point he was god it was so whimsical it was so funny yeah and even through the interaction itself it was really really funny but just once it ended it just fell flat and it it gives some extra life to wayne and and develops his complexity even more but it's god it's tough you know i definitely get it yeah it 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 is a very rough moment because it is 
he's chosen a man of whom has done similar things to him right randomly off of a fucking sheet. He's just trying to come up with someone that he can genuinely impersonate because of a number of factors. And the fact that this is the conversation that comes up in the moment and the confrontation, a recluse showing up in public and being called out for his first time showing up in public and Wayne being the impersonator. Like you understand why Marisy's laughing. You can also understand why whack or Wayne flinches in the moment so many times. And it, it gets more complicated than that, considering that it doesn't sure. sound like he actively killed somebody. Right. But rather, she says her father died penniless and, and like frustrated because of him. It, it lends an air of incredibility to that entire story. Sure. Um, but it's still heavy enough, and the implication is strong enough that that Wayne doesn't care about the sort of scruples of that accusation. He's already at this point, just trying to think about how to make it better. Like he's, he's already sinking into the same thing that we saw last week when he was trying to address the feelings of people that he wounded. He stops feeling like he's actually playing in character. Like this is the first time he breaks character based on what somebody says to him. Mm -hmm. Somebody that isn't wax. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Somebody who doesn't already know that he's in character. Right. Right. There's the second half of this chapter as well, which is a bit longer, and it's a conversation with Bleeder as well as Bleeder's eventual escape. What do you think of this scene, this moment of mind reading and almost telepathy that happens between these two and the sudden dive after her from Wax? Yeah, we've gotten into this a little bit just mm-hmm. through context. We, we've talked about this already, but it's fucking bonkers that this can happen, you know? So I, I won't dwell on the sort of ability that mm-hmm. is new and we've posited already what it could have been from. But jumping out the window is an insane move. And it's a <laughs> crazy person bonkers cuckoo move that Wax decides to follow through with. There is so many like suppositions of like what alimantic ability has leader decided to take on this specific day. And I love that we're kind of confined in that thought. Like we know it can only be one ability. We assume it can only be one ability based on what we like, based on the conversation with harmony saying that with more spikes, He'd have more of a pull on them as well, right? So based on our and Sazed's understanding of how this all works, we're dealing with a singular ability. But it seems like there's the possibility of tin. There's the possibility of weight ferrochemical abilities. There's the po- there, were, there was another one that was mentioned as a possibility. Like, it's... I think it's really fun to see Wax go through this thought process of trying to deduce what ability he's opposing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to fight against that and how to like work that into his, his plan. And it's constantly changing because what the fuck is going on? How did they not land on the ground with a splat? If they didn't have a physical ability keeping them in the in the air, 
how did how were they able to hear the whispers that he was saying without tin? Like, it's it's very complicated, but very 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 cool. I yeah, there are puzzle pieces. I know there are and puzzle I'm, pieces. I'm, I'm missing place. some. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the most frustrating I, thing in the world, knowing that I, there's missing information that would make this easy to understand and just having to pretend that it's not there because I know it because like, I don't know what it is. Uh, I'll tell you that I, I think it's a very interesting game for Brandon to have basically built out this series to be like a mystery series. So it's like a mystery Western fantasy, right? And so the entangling of things just makes it so much more complicated than a lot of other books would even consider approaching, right? Like the usually uh, even thing about Mistborn Era 1, the thing you're untangling is the magic system and how the world works with the magic system or how the magic system can be used against the world. Here, you're untangling limitations within the magic system in addition to new variables added into the magic system in addition to one or two fucking mysteries and you're looking for beats it makes it to be frank really hard to do my part of my job here because it is it's so difficult to be like what do i point to what do i not point to what do we talk about what do we not talk about in these moments and that's why i'm so glad that this book versus Alloy of Law, Alloy of Law, I, I love Alloy of Law. It, it doesn't quite have the same. The lines are blurred a little bit more between like character, plot, magic, and everything else than this book is where it's more clearly defined. And so this book does a better job of proposing those mysteries to begin with. But that does make it more difficult for me to even attempt to ensure that I'm not leading you on. You know what I mean? Versus just yeah. having a discussion. So weirdly... This is a great argument for this being the first book in a trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is a scenario where our <clears throat> understanding of the mechanics and of the lore and of what's going on is only muddying the waters further as far as the mystery goes. And it's not giving more right. answers. It's just making it more complicated. So somebody coming right. into this fresh without any other... Ex- like exposure to the story is still dealing with the same amount of mystery just without the muddy like shit mm-hmm. that follows it yeah absolutely you you've got like from an entry standpoint this would be great i'm glad that you recognize that now because i know that we got into a conversation about this last week or in the last episode that we recorded and i i feel like the story does define itself on its own relatively well it would be a less complicated mystery if you didn't have all of the other juggling pieces in the back of your mind. You'd only be hanging on to a couple of details and threads. Right. Right now. I don't like so. that as an answer. I'd, it, well, I'd, it's a complex answer. Like, that's the reality. Like, it's right. a it's a complex problem. Complex answer. Like, how... It's, it's also like a... It is a strange overlap between what is best for the narrative and what is best to ensure that I continue, I can continue existing as a writer <laughs> from like a narrative standpoint that's, to make sure they sell things. So that's like a good point too, you know, there there's, there are tough things to consider. We try to focus on narrative, but like my brain also cannot not think about, you know, Sanderson at this point was fairly established. So I, I think it's reasonable, but at the same time, 
he's into the he wasn't fully at this point the powerhouse that he is today. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I want to end this chapter as the way this chapter ends with asking if you have any notes on the newspaper. A team exists still, apparently, according to this newspaper. I get that this is not necessarily a should be taken as truth kind of document. It's not that kind of newspaper. I get that. <laughs> but the existence of, I don't know, uh, nah, like National Enquirer talks about fucking alien abductions and shit on the front page. So like wild bonkers, untrue shit happens all the time. But there's the article talking about how a baker is using flakes of atium to like a, a very sort of avant-garde high-end baker is is putting flakes of atium on their cupcakes or whatever the fuck it feels very much like a truff like a black truffle on top of something gold, to me gold, personally gold, yeah, gold foil flakes. yeah yeah but in in sort of the realm of house defining wealth <laughs> Okay, I can see the house defining wealth thing. For me, it it feels so much like it leans into the realm of gimmick and unreality that it it feels less like it's house defining more wealth and more like no one's gonna fucking know if this is a team or not unless they're a fucking a team misting and no one knows if they're an a team misting or not. So like, come eat That's our cupcakes fair. and maybe someone will figure it out. No one is going to figure it out because it's not fucking ATM. So like there's this weird like complex. It's so interesting that we're talking about this because this is literally two sentences. It is. Of this paper. So, it is. But uh, it's in direct contradiction to what's been asserted that all the ATM's gone. Right. Which is reinforced and, at the party. Right. That's true. Which which is why I think it's so interesting that that's here. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like this yeah. was written by Brandon Sanderson. Like this, he knows there's exactly a re- what he's he doing knows here. exactly what he's doing. Yeah, it's here on purpose. Mm-hmm. It's it's really fun too as we as we think about like historical comparisons of the United States, and I I bring back up the yellow papers, and I think that's why this this entire idea of this basically being a rag newspaper resonates so much. As you may have caught on reading the newspaper, you may have seen a couple of different mentions of Alamancer Jack, and you may have only been able to read a paragraph or two at a time. But if you can't imagine it now, Alamancer Jack is. Just a newspaper article that's extra long <laughs> as far as a short story goes, which is why I was like, it doesn't matter, but we can't read it until you've at least read a chapter of the first era. <laughs> but we we do have we can't just dismiss this book or the, these these articles as false because we have context showing that they're true sometimes. While sensationalized, True. it like was a talk different about paper. The face, oh, was it? A, they were different the papers. Immortals. Yep. Okay. Yep. That was the that was the Ellen Dill Daily versus this is. I thought this. Was oh my the god! Daily. I can't remember. The other one. It might be the other way around. But there is there is a material difference in the papers themselves. Oh, the something sure. record. Yeah. Right. But I mean, we also. 
Yeah, this we is get the a true article the other about one is wax the NFL Daily. right here. We do, and that's not to say that there aren't things to be considered as true potentially, including like the the racing thing between the cars. Uh, I mean, the street that, racing, all I'm right? all I'm saying is that that means we can't just immediately disregard this as false because it exists in this paper. That also sounds like a wonderful argument that a paper salesman would make. I know. I and that's the point of yes, yellow pages. I know. That's I know. That is the point of yellow pages. That's yeah. why it's so brilliant. That's why I love this is because it is it cannot be taken as fact, but it cannot be discounted. Hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I think that this is brilliant. Like it's a brilliant move for Sanderson to to have written this all in because it is so back and forth that's like do we trust it do we not what do we do here i don't fucking know what do we do with this index document do i take it as fact do i consider it not Fuck. yeah it's really cool. cool it is very cool and i don't disagree with that in the slightest all right we go into chapter 11 here and hot damn my friend this is just an excellent chapter front to back we start off with the chase of Bleeder working through the streets to try to find her. He destroys a car by a superhero slamming down into the engine, preventing it from moving any further. After a quick confrontation with the driver, he quickly takes off in the direction the driver recommended a couple of blocks back and finds himself confronted by an ambush committed to by the set. As he's flanked by this force, he manages to take a couple down when a surprising ally arrives. Milan, the lady that was dressed in red in Chapter 9, showing up here to save the day. It almost feels like in the moment you're like, Wayne, but then it's Milan. and It's just so much better that it's Milan because it mm-hmm. downplays, it plays against our expectations of him showing up to save the day. I am, through this section, I'm still un, undecided on my thoughts on that cabbie as waxes and Mm -hmm. wax ultimately decides he doesn't have enough information to make a solid decision. So he just kind of has to trust him. Directs him as best as he can. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we'll see if that cabbie comes and talks to the, uh, talks to the constables and gets payment for the new car and whatever, whatever else, Wax promised, but I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Feels fishy, especially considering it goes straight into an ambush at yeah. the direction of the cabbie. Yeah. Milan's great here. The introduction or the reintroduction of the sort of translucent skin pockets and uh, overlapping that with just hiding things inside of boobs. <laughs> There's definitely a whole thing to talk about there um, for <laughs> sure. And I, I definitely want to get to it. But I, I just want to talk about the setup to the action scene that we see like mm-hmm. end here, which I think we hit. So obviously this badass conjurer from the past has been sent to help wax and help cheat does in this moment. She makes a couple of notes and, and says them out loud. The contract seems to have shifted. The father is obviously says it and ten soon. Our boy ten soon is still alive and out there and kicking, it seems. And Milan asks Wax to not tamil on her too much for all of the killing. They manage to make their way out of a tricky situation by pulling off some complex stunts, but agree to meet up later. 
all in all, what do you make of this entire sequence between the gunplay, <laughs> the executions, the tricky bit with the miscloak, the mist themselves, Burnett's rope weapon, and the whole thing with the true body? It's a lot to to, to talk about. There's all a shit ton that happens in this scene. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna downplay it. So Milan has a hilarious <laughs> reveal. Well, reveal, reveal. But I, this this is one of the strangest feeling commentaries that I've read in a very long time of, wow, you can hide so much fun stuff in there after she pulls a fucking pistol out of her chest. Like That was just such a weird. (laughs) There is something juvenile about it. I definitely agree with you. It it felt awkward. Yeah. at, At best. Awkward at best, yeah. but funny. I'll admit. I think funny because of the like awkward context of it. The connotation, yeah. We we didn't know that it was really Milan up until this point. Like we didn't really have an understanding, and this is the moment where it's like it truly breaks that barrier, and we're very aware of who this okay. is. I'm just weird, but bonkers, and whatever. the The combat itself, I felt like, was lifted back out of the first trilogy and is exactly what I had been missing and exactly what I wanted. And I can't help but drool over the way that this combat was written. Can I comment slightly on this? Yeah. I think one of the biggest differences between this comment, this combat and some of the things in alloy of law is the number of people that are involved. I think that's, and I think that it's, it is just the sheer jumping between people. I think alloy of law is great but because Sanderson's combat is so focused on executions, to be frank, and when someone dies, you know, the, yeah. the other combat was more focused on strategy in Olive Law. And in this book, it's more focused on that guy's head, that guy's head, that guy's head, reload, steal bullets from this guy's pocket, that guy's head. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Like it's there are other elements mm-hmm. that I think that he brings back here very effectively, but there's also Majestic body count here. Yeah. Yes and no. There were this sort of writing style even existed between those skirmishes of of Vin and Kelsier early on. Yeah, I'm I'm not discounting that. Oh, hmm, okay. I don't think the writing changed that much. I guess that's my core core thought here. I feel like it was some of the emphasis is placed a little bit differently because it was a little bit more like there's a little bit more duck and cover as a Western, if that makes sense, I versus in Alloy of Law. Honestly, and this this sounds like this might sound backwards, but Alloy of Law felt too narrative in the actual description of what was happening as opposed to just technical. Hmm. I feel so inverse of that opinion. Like this is mechanical. Okay. Like the, the it. And I, I think that's what I like about it. It's very much step by step, action by action. No thoughts are intruding into this narr- narration of the combat. And that wasn't the case in Alloy of Law. Yeah. Okay. I I understand. I guess I just feel it's less realistic that thoughts wouldn't intrude, if that makes sense. Like it feels like absolutely there are moments. Okay, here's the thing. Imagine yourself in a moment 
where you are going to cut someone's head off with like a spear or whatever. Who gives a shit what it is? So as you as you're cleaving through a routine that, you know, and you're taking care of someone, you cleave through and in post in the immediate moment after doing that, if it's your first time doing it, you'd react, right? Like you'd react emotionally to that moment of taking someone's life. You might not do it in the immediate moment, but it might pay off in the long run. And I feel like that's something that Alloy of Law does a little bit differently than Shadows of Self does, is it gives a little bit more weight to the impact of the decision to kill someone in the way that it's it's a mental thing. And there are different moments, not just it's not it's not as though he's weighing every life that he's shooting. It's like, oh, my God, I'm killing so many people. That's I don't think this book is trying to moralistically weigh itself that way. But I do think that up until this point, it had at the very least held each life in a higher consideration than any of the Mistborn books had. Every I mean, person feels like they have agency in a in a scene versus it's you know that's fair. My one, I guess, pushback on that is these fight scenes mm-hmm. specifically, this one and the one that sort of I'm alluding to from the first trilogy, almost feel like they break the mold of the actual perspective that we're sitting in. And feel yeah. third yeah. person. Yeah. And I know technically they're not, but looking at it that way changes, I feel like. I, maybe maybe that's the big difference, is that Alloy of Law, we were just in their head more. And this returned to the form of like kind of bringing ourselves out of the actual perspective of the person we're technically in the perspective. That's that's fair. I mean, it's it's tough to parse precisely. So I, I think that we've done a good job of, of trying to address that as much as possible. That breaks narrative like that. That breaks breaks narrative rules. rules. Yeah, right. So it, it's it doesn't technically like it's it's not like it just, you know, I, I brings, think yeah. by and large, we're, we're talking about this in the discord a little bit today. If you like it it can break narrative rules. <laughs> like that's, that's the reality. Like, but narrative, I, it, I don't think it's a very loose. It just doesn't focus on any of the internal monologue of that narrative. Yeah. Or of that right, perspective. Right. It abstracts itself a little bit from the emotion of the moment of which I generally prefer to feel the way my character feels in the moment of combat or in the moment of, you know, different moments. I I like to feel the adrenaline, for instance, that might be running through them or the fear that could be running through them when they're hiding or the, the moment where they strike through someone and they, it's an unexpected moment because they didn't even imagine being in that moment. Like there's, there are a lot of different things that play into my thoughts of what I want to experience from a character. And I think Brandon does, extract it to a to the most cinematic version of the moment which is to remove as much emotion as possible from those things which is like you're saying almost a shift in perspective as though you're you're moving away from the pov you move into a camera lens following people and while that makes for a really great adaptation in some moments it leaves me wanting for how wax feels about any of these people that he's killing. Like it, it's funny. It's funny that you have that experience on it. And I like was complaining about missing that sort of 
in Aloe of Law. <laughs> like, I'm at absolutely the other end of the spectrum as you are on this, because this is exactly what I want in my combat scenes. Uh, yeah, I, and... Like, we're just we're just on opposites, I guess. We are, we are on opposites, <laughs> but part of my brain is like, is it an opposite because of exposure? Like, my, my issue here is Maybe. that... I don't care. I know. And that's that's okay. That's it is a okay. But my brain is also like introducing PJ to literature. Do I fight this moment? Do I fight this expression? Do I think about the way that other people write things? And do I try to make arguments as to why an emotional moment instead of these things are more important? So or I will I will say do I, I like this because of the accept. pacing of it. The pacing is great. Let's let's not get me wrong. There are other people who can pace emotional combat like very well. And, I'd love and make to see it that. Feel right. I I'd can't love wait to for you to read that. the first law. Yeah, I can't wait for you to read the first law or the Dark Tower or Poppy War or Jade City coming up pretty quick here. There, there are a number of great examples. I, I guess core point being, I totally understand why you enjoy this and why you like this because I also really like it and really enjoy it for a lot of the same reasons. But in the same way that we were in the very beginning of this episode criticizing, or sorry, not the beginning of this episode, in the Devil's Cut, criticizing House of the Dragon, feeling like it was 80-20 or like maybe 90-10% missing, this is one of those things that changes something from like a, a 7 or an 8 in my mind to a 9 or a 10. Is that like emotional flip over to like really make you feel the gritty moment? So like it's great. I, I have no problem with this combat, but I I do wish for more, if that makes sense. It's not perfect. I, I can't. I could not. I could never call. It's perfect. Yeah. That was a lot of talk about a whole few amount of words. <laughs> it's fair. It's All right. Fair. Any other thoughts? I, I don't want to. No, I don't think so. All right. Cool. With that, we go into chapter 12. Wayne, almost certain that Bleeder isn't. The bus boy who jumped out of the window scribbles on some paper instead of actually making real notes. I, I find this just like such a fun moment that I have to make reference to it because while not important, it is hysterical. It's this really is fucking just funny. perfect. But I think it could be made important because it proves that Wayne totally understands people. Yes. He doesn't he doesn't care about like actually getting down the information, but he cares about putting these people that he's talking to into a position where they're going to be in whatever sort of headspace that he needs them to be. And he understands that taking notes gets them to be more uh cooperative or feel better about what's going on. It doesn't matter that he's like to him and to us, I guess, it doesn't matter that he's not actually taking notes. It's funny and it's comical, but he does it for a reason. He doesn't do it for no reason. He doesn't do it for comedic right. effect. He does it because it makes people more comfortable. I I do want to add here that I think it's interesting to think about him versus Steris and where Steris is trying to appease the sort of social norm and like she doesn't meet it and that's okay that she doesn't meet it because she has her own path that she's going on. Wayne is aware of the social norm and 
meets it as far as people expect, but does not value the social norm versus Steris values the social norm. It's it's a it's a fascinating dichotomy between these two characters of whom also dislike each other, which is another layer. I think that that actually gives some really good insight to why what like Wayne is repulsed by her. Right. Because they're opposites. Yeah. Because she's in some ways she's faking it or not. Not she's faking it. She's faking it is the right term, but it's not the right term. She is, I think, from from Wayne's perspective, a fraud. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. 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 And so he feels like she's playing around with ideas and people and things wherein she is not she's playing everything very honestly and they just have a difference of communication where where they haven't been able to like come to a front and like really talk to each other yet because they have very different ideas and that conflict rears its head when they have a conversation about letting wax go at at some point and like love someone who could love him the same way perspective right yes yep i think that happens inside of this chapter is it this chapter or next chapter whatever it's this chapter I I was so impressed by that. (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll definitely talk about that in a moment. But like it it all feeds back into that idea. And especially as we think about these characters as dichotomous, it makes sense that they would clash over someone that they interact with in their life. Mm -hmm. Like one of the primary people inside of their lives. So Brandon has some excellent prose leading up to this moment, describing Alamancy Alamancy and the, the sort of progression of humanity on this planet, mastering stone fire and pulling out the marrow of the rock for Alamancy and the way that that burns in the stomach, the same way that the fire did to consume it on a soul level. It's, it's, it's a bit of pretty, pretty good prose. Wax, of course, in the moment, rescues Harms in a funny scene where he pulls a gun and then thinking about the scene that happens a little bit later in the story here, because these two Wax bits don't make sense to separate for me as we talk about the story, because they all kind of flow together as he progresses. He stashes Harms away and heads back to the governor innate, tracking him down despite the decoys that he had sent out by and for for and by Drim for the protection of innate. They run through a number of different things, including what went down at the party, what's to go down going forward. But personally, PJ, what did you think of the discussion with innate, the code word, and the idea that a chondra, having been introduced to the narrative, how that plays a factor in all of the stories surrounding all these different people? Like, who can you trust? Yeah, I, you know me. You know me. Um, I'm always going forward, going to have this little bug in my head telling me that this person is not actually this person and that they're right. being intimidated by a chondra. That's going to be a problem, I think, for me going forward. You talked about sort of mastery of stone and fire and allomancy as a society. And that is an in stark... Uh, opposition to and uh, disagreement with Sazed's comments previously, which we, I don't think we got into this part in our conversation before, but I think it's important to mention he talks about the radio and how if he hadn't taken them, like haven't, hadn't taken it so easy on them, 
they could have invented that by now. And we know contextually and extra textually that there is no time travel allowed within this universe. So, and, and I think he starts to explain something about a different part of this world. I think the radio exists on this planet and we're just not exposed to those people that says it doesn't have such intricate fingers on other people in the cool. world. Huh? Well, I mean, we talked about that in the, in hero of ages, right? When they were, yeah, but would they survive the end of the world? Apparently they did. Okay. I mean, Reasonable. This is the yeah. the book is telling me this, not me. I'm not, I, I know, I know. I'm, well, not I'm just trying. To, you're you're making some assumptions on top of things, but but there are. I'm not saying they're outlandish. I'm just asking questions. There are very clear, like, Sazed starts talking and kind of backs up and like stops himself. Kind of conversations. It's just fun seeing the the different sides of things. Totally, like, we've. We've so in, intensely mastered this as opposed to I've coddled you too much. and You haven't evolved as much as I think you should have. Yeah. Yeah. I it is fascinating. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't add more to the thought process. So I'm going to skip it. I'm going to skip it. But I'm just I excited do, do for th- Scorpion Dinks to come rolling in from this like, oh. highly advanced world. All of a sudden. <laughs> God, how I miss the Halo theme. Unfortunately, they haven't released a game in the last five years that is co-op mode on the same console, so I haven't bought it. Yeah. Have they done it at all on this uh, console? Friend. The generation? They promised after Halo 5 that every game would have system co-op local. I know. And they axed it two months ago and they said we can't do it i i i know that much but this okay this generation that's or this i generation. guess the previous generation they have not gone back and fixed halo 5 if that's what you're well, assuming halo 5 master chief collection halo, master chief collection still has all of the same capabilities it had when it was released for the most part co-op wise i thought it didn't have split screen Maybe I'm super wrong, but I thought that's I why did have I bought co-op. an Xbox One. I thought so we could I play Master Chief Collection together. Uh, uh-uh. because I wait. You have you have an Xbox One, not a Series S or X. This is like the apartment no. where you lived. Okay, no, yeah. So you bought it because we were actually playing Advanced War, Advanced Warfare together. We were playing Call of Duty uh. together. We're not playing Master Chief Collection because Master Chief Collection didn't come out until near the end of the life cycle. When I had upgraded to the 4K version, the reason I bought the 4K version is because supposedly Halo 5 was going to come out. And I was under the impression that we were going to have co-op and we did not for Halo 5. Okay, moving on. Uh, we, We do really get this new shot in the arm perspective from here from Steris. It's it's short, it's sweet, but it begins to give us an inside lens into how she sees things and sets up future bits inside of her perspective. While a small thing, I really appreciate it inside of this chapter, despite a number of conflicting moments that that happen. I felt like this section was really fucking sad. Oh, I, for sure. Like it's depressing. And 
there it, it deflates this sort of sense of cartoony perspective that we have between Wayne and Steris and Steris in general and Wayne in general. And like Wayne is very clearly just kind of blunt and rude. And I get that this is her perspective and maybe it's warped, but we get direct quotes and we get direct like descriptions of what Wayne does here. And like he goes and, sits in the glare of the guards because like it's not next to her and it it's just upsetting <laughs> it's really depressing i did not like this section because it felt icky to inhabit it i definitely get that i think that that's the point is to like i know in yeah. in some ways like demystify and then rehumanize the idea of what these characters are doing, which I do, I do think actually makes it changes Wayne from, and, and this whole story from feeling like something like, like a cartoon into something very real or much it more does. real at the very least. Yeah. I get, I guess when I say I didn't, I don't like this section. It's not. Yeah. I understand. It's not that mean, I dislike but. the, the writing of this section or anything like that. It, it's that like you mentioned, it's, demystifying and it 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 really kind of adds weight to the entirety of the story here and it makes it feel so much more real whereas previously it was it was a lot more i'm gonna stick with cartoony i think i think that's the right way to describe it sure yeah augmented not, not augmented what's what's that term i can't i can't remember i can't remember what term i'm trying to use here Okay. Yeah. Anyway. It, you know, it, it does alter our perspective at the very least. And it, it taints, I, I, I don't want to say taint that that's a little bit too incorrect in, in sort of our, the way that we think about this, but it does make us reevaluate a lot of the previous scenes, especially as we can consider, you know, regular people evaluating the way that like wax and Wayne behave. They, they are outlandish. We see this later in chapter 13 or sorry, it later in this chapter with Dell, right? As he speaks with Marisy and, and kind of like makes him out to be this rogue guy. It's a, it's a very similar kind of comparison without inhabiting his perspective and like really understanding where Ardell is coming from Ardell. Mm-hmm. So yeah, totally get it. So from the end of Wax's first perspective, we moved to Marisys here. We skipped over kind of the interchange that happens. And there has been a horrible crime committed within Marisys' perspective. A survivorist priest has been impaled on, sorry. Yeah, a survivorist priest has been impaled onto the wall, as well as the story of Larkspur and what he's been spouting to the crowd as a Pathian. To quote, Larkspur said, that the survivor was a false god, that Kelsier had tried and failed to help humankind, that his death hadn't been about protecting us or ascending, but about stupidity and bravado. It's an interesting note that punctuates the scene, especially considering the conflict between these two religions and the people that are here and present, obviously a part of different conflicting religions, as they interrogate people from the crowd of whom are obviously of the predominant religion of the crowd. What are your thoughts on Larkspur and the murder that we see here? It's apt. 
that previous section demystified us from the sort of cartoonish nature of this of this book because this is this is a step up in intensity Mm -hmm. to like to put it lightly this is this is insane like this is absolutely insane really really fucking cool heavy midnight mass vibes throughout the whole thing when like the recounting of the speech and all that there's Mm -hmm. a comment on looking at this corpse with the spikes through the eyes about how it reminds Marisy of something from the Historia, but not something specific that she can recall. And my first thought is that this has to be about the Inquisitors, but if it's something that she can't recall specifically, it has to be something different because she's directly like personally met Marsh and that's not a a piece of imagery that you just forget. And that's what I would think that she'd be pulling from here. I don't know, man. Yeah. What did you have any sort of insight into that? No, I, I think especially given the Marsh comparison, it does feel like a bit of a sort of like an editing oversight to some degree. It, it could be, and I'm not exactly sure what else it could be at this point. It could have been other punishments that are given to people, which I would maybe believe more readily, or like people that have been punished for crimes and that that could, I think, reasonably fit in where it's like she can remember other people having similar sort of impalements at different times for punishments for crimes and that might be your issue but if it were the comparison directly to an inquisitor it unless she is also because of the historica unaware that marsh is an inquisitor which could totally be possible but she saw Marsh. Um, she's so she's smart i yes i totally agree with yeah. you so i i'm on a this is a very light a light ad here it's not this is not a commitment in any way, shape or form, but like if for some reason she didn't see his face because it was covered, she saw the steel spiked eyes. So we know that actually, but maybe she didn't connect the dots of any character. I believe she should have connected the dots for the record. So I'm more prone to believe that it's a form of torture that was underexplained. Yeah. Maybe it was more the fact that this, this person was, almost crucified as opposed to just yeah. the fact that their eyes were spiked. Um, right. Like it, it's depending on what that sort of operator is on what they're describing. Absolutely. And I really, I really think that that's kind of the piece that we're missing here to some degree is I think we're close, but not, not there yet. If that makes sense. Okay. Side note, I'm looking at the paper, the picture of wax does not line up with my picture of wax inside the paper. It's all definitely thank God. Yeah. Yeah. It nothing. Nothing like how I imagine wax. Interesting. Nothing like how I imagine the man. R- regardless, going going back to this just a little bit, it is a brutal depiction and a brutal moment. And it is like th- there's some details here that make me absolutely go like Fuck yeah, I'm glad they're here. They really add that sense of like long-term pain. The way that it appears as though the fingers have like painted the side, like where he's scrambled to try to like get out of what he can, but he can't move himself and he's just bleeding all over. There are just some like nice notes that paint this as a 
an inescapable moment of of pain and torture. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but it's a great writing thing. It's really well described. Yeah, yeah, but it it shifts the feel of this story instantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, into something much more dark. Yeah, it it does shift it, and we're in part two, so we're apt apt for that to happen in the first mm-hmm. book of a trilogy. Ardell and Marisy have a brief conversation about wax. What, what do you think about Ardell's opinion on the rogue nobleman as it stands? I, I think I, I get it, you know? Like, I want to push back against it, and I want to sort of put our perspective on this and say, no, look, he's, he's doing this for this, this, and this noble reason, and it makes sense, and he should be allowed to do that. But I, I can't make a solid argument for that without that argument, including the ends justify the means, you know? Yeah, definitely get it. Like that, that's the only way it makes sense is the ends justify the means. And that that's not the point here. And that's not what matters. That's also like not our, our is trying to like justify this idea of having a rogue lawman on for so long. Right. Yeah, it is, you know, it's just more work results. Yeah. But at the same time, there's, there's better results, more people getting caught, but there's more work without any sort of bump in morale of, of their men, you know, or of their, of their constables because they're glorified sort of janitors at, at a certain point. Cleaning up yeah, after right. waxes messes, which is its own issue in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <sighs> yeah, yeah. It's you know, Ardell is in an interesting position where he has to deal with his prior administration's mess in the form of Britain, but then he also has to like take on the entirety of the City Watch, and then also has to deal with all this corruption in the best way that he can despite being a retiree of whom left the force because he explicitly felt like he couldn't kind of deal with this sort of thing because the political situations otherwise didn't let him really handle it. So he's reentered. It's, it's like he dove right back into a snake's den, a viper's den that he had previously avoided. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. He's such a good character. For sure. I, I love, I love the man. I love the man but I also do not envy anything about what he's going through. Right. With that, we go into our last chapter of the week, chapter 13, and we meet up with Wayne visiting a pub. But I, I just love the depiction that happens throughout this. We don't know that it's a pub. And as Wayne approaches it, he talks about it like a church, like it's this place that people visit. It's this holy place with lecterns and Bibles and things that people really respect. It's very focused in on. And after he goes to church, that the focus here lies on the common folk of whom are hurting and reeling from their economic hardships and they're turning to the church for help. Oh boy, this metaphor runs really deep, especially for a, a man of, of Mormon faith. But he even, you know, like tries to add levity to the moment, being like a, a sort of come again priest of whom shows up and and takes their drinks and remixes them and helps them out, giving them a different spin on what they're having in the moment of which they may have been previously drowning their sorrows in and some 
bland vodka or straight rum as it were presented from the priest at the lectern. But there's a fuck ton that happens here, including our very first reference to the word Cosmere, of which you brought up earlier, which is fascinating that it happens instead of this moment that is treated like this holy moment that we kind of understand is sort of very jokey as he references the bar and thinks about it as this unreliable narrator. But I, I just love how the scene plays out. Wayne becoming our mixologist, taking care of all the people and their drinks here inside of this uh, church. Of course, the moment ends when he finally runs into Milan and that's a whole interaction laced with a whole lot of sexual pretense for a Sanderson novel. There is so much flirtation here that it overwhelms any thoughts that you may have had about anyone else up until this point in any of the Sanderson books. Yeah, this has to be. Yeah. This is sexually charged. This is more sex and romance than any of the other Sanderson books I've read combined. Yeah. <laughs> in in four pages. In yeah, exactly. Uh, but regardless, cheers. Quite mm-hmm. a bit of drinking that happens throughout this section. There's so much drinking. This is the inspiration for our drinks today. Correct. And we get sort of a new ability through Milan that it's not that it's new. Like it's not a overwhelmingly new ability. And I think we could probably have extrapolated that this was possible, but we'd never seen a Chandra change their hue before on a whim, but it makes sense that they could do that. It just had never occurred to me that that was a thing that they could do, you know? Right, right. It was it was never something that was front of mind because it was right. always something that it was never a question. Every, everything about the conjure was about imitating. And this is kind of a creative flourish in a lot of ways. Exactly. Which is it highlights the seventh generation in its own right, right? Like it gives but us an idea further. We, that. Get, we get that though through Tensoon of of the like absolute creation he's a rebel for a third yeah exactly but color has never come into play and there's no reason why it shouldn't have or why it couldn't have rather it just didn't so yeah it had never crossed my mind but it's really cool to see this here color is a specific paint that's added to the palette here that hasn't been there before but (laughs) The seventh generation in general has always been the creative or so far as we've understand has always been the creative one that changes and breaks rules. So it makes sense that, of course, she would do this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It is ironic that the Don't seventh think? generation is the one that's the rule breakers and the status quo measures. Yeah. And she's kind of the, the keeper <laughs> of of the Chandra faith at this point, or the Chandra people at this point. Yeah. In her own right. She is kind of yeah. the, I, I think in a lot of ways though, she does model herself after Tin soon as we understand throughout this chapter, which is that she breaks a lot of rules that otherwise, especially uh, talking about, I think chapter nine, 10, when she kills people and she's like, please don't tell anyone else. <laughs> I don't this. tell Tin soon that I killed a yeah. bunch of people again. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> and that again points to like her almost like youthful naivete in these situations because she has a very different relationship with humanity than Tensoon did, which is also why I think God. she's more relatable and she likes them to begin with. It's so funny to use the term youthful here because she's 300 right. years older than last time we saw her. And she's she six already years ancient yeah. at that point. Yeah, <laughs> man. Crazy. But then from there, we graduate to a burping contest, which includes a burp <laughs> ripping out of Milan's hand, which is fucking hilarious. Of course, inside of this whole section, this is just a great moment of where we see Milan and Wayne's similarities, which is, again, a nice like non wink to them being compatible. This like a uh, 600-year-old immortal and a 30-year-old <laughs> taken. Dude. Dude. Ta- He's not taken. Is he taken? He claims to be. Right. Right. He claims to be. But the the point being, you know, <laughs> as it goes. Um, and, and there's an interesting culture clash here that happens between her, between Marisi and Milan as far as the conjure goes, religious figures, and how Milan doesn't view herself at all that way. There's, there's this sort of interesting conflict where it's like, holy one godly one like there's just so many different moments where it's there's this holier than thou sort of thing that's going on and she's just like nah yeah (laughs) there's a really cool parallel that i think can be made Mm -hmm. between that feeling and how the crew viewed kelsier Mm. okay throughout the entirety of the uh second and third books in that Kelsier's gone and he's being revered as this god. Mm-hmm. But that's not that's not their friend. That's not how they it's know not accurate. Him. Yeah. Like why would they see him as a god? They they see him as just this fucking dude that like was very charismatic. He's just a man. Yeah. I I just I appreciated that comparison or that parallelism. Sure. It it feels fairly unique and Maybe that's just the fact that I'm not super well exposed to like fiction stories, but this well-established religion and this character within that religion that doesn't feel that they fit that mold and being able to see that twice for, for similar reasons, but and within the yeah, same including religion, like wax in the earring and the delivery and there's there's yeah. some handoffs there that feel similar to the generational handoffs of the era before yeah but just the pushing against the deification of these characters is consistent and interesting yeah it's it's so weird it, very real but so weird that no one believes themselves a god. You know what I mean? Like the, the idea that like no one's like, yeah, I'm God. Like not even Harmony's like, even he's a little bit distant about the entire idea. You know what I mean? Like there's there's this distance from being worshipped, like you were saying. I, I think you did a great job summing it up. But I do I do want to push back a little bit on the idea of like Kelsier not being made out that way. Because I think Kelsier explicitly, not with the crew, but I think that he did push for a higher image of himself, unlike a lot That's of other true. people in the story. He did. He was always pushing for the appearance of more than he was, which is why I think it ultimately sets up the religion of the survivorist to begin with. But I don't think he necessarily 
wanted that to continue after he died, though. Uh, he kind of did. He thought of himself as a martyr, which is tough to say that he doesn't want his memory that's, to go on when he dies. And if he that's starts, true. I guess, yeah. I guess I don't think he I, intended for it to be perpetuate itself the way that it did. I think his entire point was to motivate rebellion, not to perpetuate yes. that martyrdom beyond the, uh, yeah, he, he maybe wasn't looking to perpetuate the egotism that was brought on, but he was looking to perpetuate at the very least the martyrdom to overthrow the empire. Like he was right. He it's wanted just, to make sure that he was a symbol to overthrow. Yeah. It's just after that was successful. Mm-hmm. I don't think he didn't intend for it to go forward. I don't, I, I just don't think he put any thought into that. He never, he never put any sort of brain power towards like, Hey, after they succeed, what are they going to think of me? You know, I don't think that was yeah. ever on his mind. Right. Right. I don't think that he was thinking about a lot of those things, which is why we we've suffered. I don't want to say we've suffered. We, we have some long-term fallout from those decisions in the form of these competing religions. So makes for an yeah. interesting talking point for sure. It does. I think it's important to also talk a little bit about, and as we discover Milan's goal in all of this and her goal, first and foremost, is to save Paul, not to kill her like everyone else is trying to do as they have approached her as a bleeder. We also get some history of Paul. She's the second most skilled Chandra alive, so it appears or so we understand behind Tensoon. And she was an assassin who toppled the kingdoms in who toppled many kingdoms in the Lord Ruler's absence. She's incredibly skilled and dangerous. But she still, she being Milan, Milan still wants to preserve her by pulling out that spike and reverting her to a mistrate so they can assess and work on her assumptively inside of the sort of Chandra group of folks, which is definitely something we should talk about. But we also get a new tool here that's introduced, one of a pair of needles that work to inoculate a Chandra. What do you think about Milan's objective here and the new information presented about Bleeder and how do you think the new tool will be used against her? It it feels obvious to me that there's something external making these decisions, especially considering mm-hmm. she is, by all accounts, insane based on the fact that she only has one spike in. So like, it only makes sense to me that there is something else driving her. So for that reason, I think it, I, 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 I don't understand why Milan wouldn't want to try to preserve her in some way. At the same time, I totally get the perspective of Wax in this moment, thinking that if I'm in a scenario where this person is causing harm to, to, to people that I care about or to people in general, and I have the opportunity to stop it, but it would have to come at the at the expense of this person. I'm going to stop them any any way I can, you know? Yeah. I think that's the important clarification to make is that like I was definitely addressing this from Milan's perspective, but the idea is is that there's a dueling perspective here with with our boy that has to be sorted out. Yeah. And I don't so. think he'd I don't think he's the kind of person that would just outright ignore anything that Milan says here. 
No. Yes, for it's, sure. It's just, he's going to maintain the, I'm going to do what I have to do. Mm-hmm. And if I can, sure. We'll, we'll try to preserve her, but I'm not going to think twice about promise that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm not going to promise that. Yeah. All right. They sort out what they're going to do next, sending people on their various paths forward to work on this case, going to various locations to try to suss out different pieces and moments. And Wax takes a second to pull aside Milan for a short conversation about the other Chondra before splitting and heading to the governor in Nate's mansion. What do you think of this brief, private conversation between the two? Man, (laughs) maybe it's just me. But if we hadn't gotten a literal word of God interjection saying that Milan can be trusted, I'd be so fucking like <laughs> suspicious of her at this moment. Mm-hmm. But as it stands, says it outright and explicitly said that we can trust her. So I'm going to trust her. <laughs> I have no idea what to make of it beyond that. Okay. All right. Well, that's where we end this week's reading. I do want to, at the very least, before we completely dive into next week and talk about that, we do have one prediction to pay off here. And this was a question from Alloy of Law. You had asked, is anyone still alive? The second thing that you'd pose instead of the list is you'd said, I don't think anyone else could be alive. But then you adjusted a little bit saying, depending on Chandra, could the same mystery come back as the same Chandra when spiked? And I'm not going to lie, PJ, this is a bullshit answer. This is a non-committal, like, a chondra could come back to life versus coulda. So, I mean, yeah, I'm a drink. I, I didn't, I didn't intend for that to be a guess, but. I drank, but the next I time that there's something you. on the line, it's your fault. That's fair. <laughs> so, well. It did feel really satisfying to see. Tondra come back in exactly the same way that like I thought they probably would. Yeah. By respiking themselves. But I, I don't know, man, there's a lot more, there's a lot more questions. Is it based on their body? Is it based on their their blessing? I don't think so because Hensoon was able to switch his blessing. So it's based on the, the mist wraith themselves to maintain the, memories maybe pj i can't answer this for you yet Hmm. Hmm. fair so with that next week we are reading chapters 14 through 19 of shadows of self again chapters 14 through 19 so it's all six chapters should be should be a good week Mm -hmm. all right so that's where we'll leave you for this week Thank you so much to our producers, Tim and Andrew, for helping us keep our show's lights on. You can check Both out. Both of whom were sick are, with COVID at the same time that I broke my hand. That, so like, yeah, I thank God they're okay. Surrounded by broken people. We, yeah, you were the only one who was okay. <laughs> we all were sick at or broken at the same time. Yep. Yep. Yes, you were. Check out. All of our links in the show notes where you can find the Patreon, previous episodes, websites, social media accounts, all in one very convenient location. 
Yes. If you were wondering where you could find us on any of the social sites like PJ had mentioned, you can find us on Words Whiskey Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit, Words and Whiskey Show at gmail.com, patreon.com forward slash Words and Whiskey, and our t shirts are currently on T Public, but that migration is happening soon. We, we, we're getting a print. It's going to be real interesting. Soon Screen print. TM soon trademark thank you all again as always recommend leaving a review for your favorite shows on all of the podcast platforms of your choice you should always do that if you like any of the podcasts that you listen to but if you listen to us and you made it this far you should know that aaron is threatening you in the wings to leave us a five-star review thank you guys so much for your support and we'll see you next week goodbye bye